This is Monocle on Design, a show where we explore everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manith. On today's show, we visit an extraordinary archive dedicated to printing, publishing and graphic design. We also meet the minds behind a type foundry looking to create a global typeface. And we meet Isabel Duarte, whose project Errata champions women graphic designers. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. As an art form, type design is often taken for granted. For many people, choosing a typeface amounts to little more than picking one from a drop-down list on Microsoft Word or Adobe InDesign. But those in the know are aware that type is closely tied to graphic design. Every font carries a particular message and conjures a certain atmosphere. Choosing the right typeface, then, is just as crucial as settling on the right layout, colour or graphic selection. And it's this subject type and type's connection with graphic design that we will be exploring on today's show, which we start in the UK capital at the St Bride Foundation. Originally established in 1891 to serve the growing publishing trade on London's Fleet Street, the foundation is housed in a beautiful Grade 2 listed building, and today it has a new contemporary audience of designers, printmakers and typographers who come to look at its collections and enjoy the regular program of design events and workshops. This show's producer, May Lee Evans, visited the foundation to meet some of the team. Hidden on a little lane just off Fleet Street is the St Bride Foundation, an eccentric space with a labyrinth of rooms filled to the brim with treasures of prints, typography, graphic design and paper-making history. Starting at the reading room, where visitors can research the collections, we meet Sophie, the foundation's librarian, who explains how this curious building came to be at the end of the 19th century. Fleet Street was a massive, loud, bustling place with all the newspapers that were being published on a daily basis. It was felt that an institute was needed to serve that community. Victorian sort of sensibility back then was to feed both the mind and the body. You had... London's first indoor heated swimming pool alongside a gymnasium and we had athletics fields and then on top of that too you had all the cultural activities so we had uh, talks, drama, music, concerts, exhibitions, displays of the latest scientific equipment and then at the heart was really the print school and the technical library and that was there to serve those going into the trade in nearby Fleet Street. So the print school, um, in the reading room that we are now, this was originally the lithographic school. We're on factory-loaded floors so that they could hold the, uh, the heavy machinery and the ironwork. Above us, where the main stacks are now, was a composition school where people would learn how to set type. By 1921, we had so many students coming through our doors that the school had to move across the water to what's now the London College of Communication. Luckily for St Bride's, a technical library remained, and that is what the foundation have grown since, to become not only a library, but an archive and a working museum too. The collections began with the private library of a master printer, William Blades, who was a biographer of William Caxon, the person who brought the technology of printing to England, a man fascinated by print history. His contributions included early printed books, manufacturers' catalogues, pamphlets and all sorts of ephemera, including type specimens. I think that's really one of the jewels in the crown of our collection. People that come here from all over the world to see what our type specimens are. Our type specimen collections are really um, catalogues um, provided by uh, type founders. If you were looking for um, a particular typeface to print something... An academic book maybe wanted a sort of conservative-looking serif. You could flick through that catalogue. 
if you were a magazine for the discerning reader, such as Monocle, you might look through until you found the plantain typeface that might suit you. You might be a jobbing printer who's creating billboard posters that need to be noticed on the street amongst all the other advertisements. So you go for some big, bold, decorative wood type. That's an amazing bit of our collection, those type specimens. One man well acquainted with the Foundation's archives is Bob Richardson, the Library and Learning Interpretation Officer. I've been using this library for 45 years. I first came here in 1977 to use the facilities and then one day when I popped in, the librarian had just retired. They were looking for volunteers, agreed to do one day a week. The following week I did two days, the week after that I did four days and that was 2012 and I've now been here for 10 years. So St Bride Library for many years was St Bride Printing Library, which was a bit of a misnomer because it implies that it's all about printing. In fact, it was all about words, letters, letter forms, and not just on printed pages, but in the form of steam train nameplates, um, street nameplates, uh, wherever you see lettering in the environment, whether it's in a printed book or on the front of a bus. That's what we're about, the history of letters and letter forms. But also the, the technologies connected with publishing, the production of paper, the technology and the science behind manufacturing printing inks. Throughout his years at St Bride's, Bob has assisted with a number of different inquiries. We've had designers coming in because they're designing stationery for a period feature film. Uh, somebody came in recently wanted to know what size stationery and envelopes Stanley Baldwin would have had on his desk in 1938. We had someone else who came in working for a distiller producing a new 25-year-old single malt whiskey, and she wanted to use a Victorian whiskey bottle label as a sort of pattern, not a straight copy, but as inspiration. And we do have collections of labels. As a result of that, we have a, an astonishing collection of printed ephemera. Say a Victorian lemonade bottle label, we have the rough sketches and the, the, the artwork which the designer planned his, um, his finished label with. In anticipation of our visit, Bob kindly selected a few gems from the collection and, to my surprise, started with a font that anyone who has picked up a copy of our magazine or hopped onto the Monocle website will be very familiar with. I thought we'd start with the Monocle typeface. And your house typeface is Monotype Plantin, Series 110. Not just any old plantin. Uh, this is a type specimen published by a company called Stevens Shanks. And this is a late 19th century specimen. And you will see in there that we have plantin old style. Now, if you look at the letter M, the uppercase M, the verticals are absolutely vertical. But your version, monotype plantin, the legs of the M are splayed. And it's quite a distinctive version. And they are very different, even though they have the same name. Foundries had a tendency sometimes to employ identical names for different typefaces. This one, the Victorian one, isn't relevant. But this one is... And this dates from 1913, and in fact there are several versions of it. Yours, as I said, is Monotype Series 110. This is Monotype Series 113, which is plantain. It's the same design, but it's a thinner version. It's a very subtle difference. You can, you can see very little between them, really. But in fact, what they were designed for was for printing on different types of paper. If you're printing on a glossy paper where there isn't much ink spread, Series 110 
looks better. But if you're printing on an old-fashioned surface which has a rough texture to it, you might want to use Monotype Series 113 because you get a deeper impression, the ink spreads a little bit, and it actually ends up looking a bit like Monotype Series 110. So it's horses for courses, typefaces for specific types of, of paper. It's a lovely typeface. I share the taste of, of, of monocle designers. Just one of the curious pieces found in the Foundation's collection. I could have spent hours in there. But for now, we head to the bowels of the building, to the print workshop, to hear the dulcet tomes of a Heidelberg or windmill press. So how would you describe the sound, actually, before, before we kick it off? Uh, mechanical. <laughs> Do I need to put the volume right down? Opened in 2010, the print workshop offers visitors the opportunity to experience printing hands-on using historic presses that line the perimeter of the space and date back to the 18th century. It's compressed air that uh, sucks up a sheet at a time and then a blade moves the sheet of paper in front of the type. Far more than museum pieces, these presses remain in working order under the watchful eye of Mick Clayton, the workshop manager at St Bride Foundation, who also showcases traditional printing techniques to visitors. It's rotating and printing. It prints about maximum about four and a half thousand copies an hour. Overseas visitors often do a, a little bit of a, a European tour, the, the Americans especially. They'll come uh, to St Bride, they go to uh, Plantin in Antwerp, uh, they go to Gutenberg in Germany. It seems to be on the European tour, this stop, you know, which is really good. We're happy to talk through and show examples of things either by uh, film or, or by actually being able to show people manually how type was cast uh, by hand, individual characters, uh, and then we talk them through the other processes, letterpress printing, right the way through to the newspapers and mass production. Mick demonstrated the type composition process of lining each letter carefully ahead of going into a letterpress. We place the type and the form on, on the stone, which um, originally were stone, but they're like a steel top table. And then we use a, a mallet and what we call a planer, which is uh, just a smooth piece of wood with a leather top. And we lay that on the type and we give it a knock to make sure that the type, as we say, is on its feet, perfectly flat, because uh, letterpress printing, everything has to be perfectly flat and level. English-speaking countries, type height, the feet to the face of the type is 0.918 of an inch. What struck me most about visiting St Bride's was not only the deep knowledge, but also the love for printing and design that everyone shared. For anyone who has a query about type, or perhaps is curious about what else might be hidden in those stacks of type specimens and pamphlets, I highly recommend that you head down to Fleet Street and pay St Bride's a visit. For Monocle in London, I'm Maylie Evans.
Established in 2015, SharpType is a digital type foundry with employees spread across the globe. At the helm are partners in business and life, Lucas Sharp and Jean Tremali. The duo collaborate closely. Sharp serves as the foundry's type and art director, while strategy is handled by Mali, who is also the founder of the Mali Scholarship, a non-profit offering financial support and mentorship to women of colour entering the type industry. Together, they work to create custom and retail typefaces for print, digital and environmental designs, with clients including the Royal Danish Theatre, Samsung and the Discovery Channel. But perhaps most notably, the studio are in the process of developing a super family of global scripts, essentially a typeface style that will remain graphically similar across Latin, Arabic and countless other writing systems and letter forms. I was joined by both Sharp and Mally down the line to discuss this super family, but started by asking about the goings-on at a type foundry on a day-to-day basis. I mean, maybe it's a little bit of a silly question to start, but I want to cut straight to the core of it. Can you tell us exactly what a type foundry does? Well, I think on the day-to-day, it's very different for a lot of foundries. A lot of foundries are do a lot of client work and stuff like that. We tend to actually focus more on self-initiated projects, building our retail library. So it's a much more inward-looking, slow, like methodical process. You know, when you're in a design studio, it's often you're really having to manage a lot of personalities, you know, manage a lot of, uh, you know, expectations. It's much more of like a, like a service industry in a way. As a foundry, we're really trying to have our, our own like vision and, and allowing the process to really like, cause it, it just takes time, man. And a lot of it's like fashion forecasting, you know, like these typefaces take years and years to complete. So you kind of have to like see what is on the event horizon in terms of where the visual zeitgeist is going to be when you just start the thing. But but to to answer your question more directly, typeface design is a really kind of like niche, very, you know, esoteric kind of thing. It's like, it's omnipresent in our world, but it's not something anyone really notices. It's not super flashy. It's not something that people, you know, lay people kind of tend to know anything about. Yeah, and it's a very important component of graphic design. I don't think either can exist without one another. And they're both, you know, working with systems. Graphic designer is very methodically laying out all of this information. And a type designer is creating, you know, working within a grid system of many, many different components of one piece. And so it's, you know, it's really, uh, a type designer has to be hyper-focused and almost as an engineer to really create all these individual forms and make sure that they work together as a larger system. That's why, you know, we, we, we often are reminding our, our clients and, and people who we're working with that it's, it's very different than lettering, which is, you know, a static format of type. Type design is something that is malleable, that has to be constantly moving. And so it requires a very different approach, much like a graphic designer, I would say. Okay, so we've got a bit of a feel for what working in a type foundry is like, but I also want to ask, and you've sort of touched on it already, but why are type foundries important and what sort of impact can your work have on our daily lives? I mean, I think it's like any other expression of art and culture, you know, like a question that gets asked a lot is like on Microsoft Word and I've got all my fonts, like, why do I need more, you know? And it's like, well, you know, it's like, why do you need new music? Why do you need new film? You know what I mean? Like, we have a canon of all of these different crafts. So yeah, I think, uh, you know, the job's not done yet because, you know, we're still alive. We're still here on this rock and 
kind of always going to be coming up with new expressions of what it what it's like to be here now and that process is is kind of you know always always continuing yeah and it's like like any other art form it's a form of expression and it has such a, an amazing historical context as well i mean we haven't a, people have been designing type since the creation of the writing format so it's something that is incredibly important in, in, in as a historical marker as we move forward and you know type it's created and represents movements and moments in time as well. You know, I mean, you look at the 1960s sort of acid type era, and that really, I think, articulates the time and the vibe and the emotions and the feelings of that, of that period. Um, and now we're moving into much more digital type, and you're seeing that and all of the opportunities that it's, it's bringing out. Um, yeah, we move in and we, we create and, and riff off of one another as well as the type industry as a whole, which, you know, is, is very exciting. I mean, it sounds like a very close-knit and connected industry. And I want to ask as well, you sort of talk there about developing fonts. And I know that you've got a super family of global scripts in the works, uh, which is all, and, and pardon me for dumbing it down for myself, but it's all about having a, a similar letter style across a host of different scripts from Latin language letters that we use in the West to Japanese kanji and Arabic script. Can you tell me a little bit about that and why you're developing it? I mean, well, I, I think everyone knows that we're living in a globalized world now and and that very much you know involves our industry as well and um the more and more you know we we've been in this industry and become established uh the more we've identified how many different people from all over the world are interested in our in our type and i think you know it's a missed opportunity as well as you know um it's honest to now start pursuing these different localized scripts. It's a form of respect, you know, to acknowledge that there are plenty of other markets that are equally as important as our, you know, our Latin forms as well. To build a global superfamily, I should say, is not easy. And, you know, we have to be very mindful of how we approach it. Um, that's probably the first challenge that we, we have to address, which is that styles do not translate the same way across all countries and all, all language scripts. So we always have to work with locals, people whose native tongue it is that are designing for, to ensure that we are being respectful of that culture. And, and, and you know, so when we want to enter that market, we're literally and figuratively speaking their language. So to build out a number of globalized scripts is again very challenging right now uh, we're working on thai where my father is from so one that we really wanted to touch on as well as japanese we're working on arabic devanagri and uh you know like jancho was saying it, it can't exist without having native designers in the driver's seat but also there is something beautiful that happens in terms of like the intercultural dialogue of you know us as a self-proclaimed eastern facing western foundry bringing like our aesthetic sensibilities to bear and you know vice versa that dialogue has been extremely rewarding you know learning about the different language systems how they're based on different writing systems there's like a standard calligraphic nib angle for different languages you know for like the roman and scriptural lettering that everything in latin is kind of based on 
it's a it's a vertical nib, you know, and for, for Devin Agari, it's like kind of a reverse nib than our standard calligraphic angle. In Asian scripts, it's it's there's no nib, it's an ink brush. So the contrast is not based on uh on translation, but on kind of like a like some kind of expansion based on like the proximity of the tip of the brush to the page. So ha- having all of those things kind of like sit together and kind of work together while being true to their original context is um, a really rewarding and fascinating challenge. And I guess just finally, what's your hope from creating this this super family of scripts? How do you hope that it's used and, and what do you hope it does for people's appreciation of, of type or, or for different type cultures? I think there's two goals. One um, being, you know, we, we hope that we're adding something new and exciting to those individual markets and they feel heard and, and, you know, excited to have been paid attention to, you know, from a, a, a global foundry. And also, I mean, from a tactical point of view, in this world of globalization, we also have a lot of global corporations that are operating in a ton of different markets. And so for them to be able to, you know, come to one place and say, I need this, I need to speak to all of these different people. And for us to have those, give them those capabilities, I mean, is, is really important. And I think create a lot of opportunities for the foundry. My thanks to Lucas Sharp and Jantra Mali there. London-based Portuguese designer and researcher Isabel Duarte is on a mission to shine a light on female graphic designers and typographers in Portugal. How? Well, by studying for a PhD at the Centre for Design History at the University of Brighton and conducting a research project called Errata. Disseminated through public exhibitions and events, an ongoing series of podcasts and published material, the Errata project looks to uncover the invisible stories of women designers on the Iberian Peninsula – to find out more, Monocle's Charlie Filmer Court spoke to Duarte. He started by asking about the visibility of a female identity in her research. One of the ideas initially was to try and shine a light on the 20th century, going through different design trends or design ways of doing throughout the years, the decades, because also as the profession developed technologically, new things were coming through different decades, and you can see that if you see the exhibition through the objects. But actually, once I started to uncover more of the stories of these women, I was more interested in their personal stories and not so much the objects themselves. And I realized that for some of them, yes, it was really important that the objects they created had this kind of personality that you talk about. But for others, actually, it was the opposite. They really their position to design was to be very chameleonic and adapt to the different clients that they had. And so actually their work isn't very recognizable as a one entity designer portfolio, but that doesn't make it less interesting. And do you think a part of the reason for that is because as women in a predominantly male industry, many of the, the people might have actually been quite worried, you know, we can't do too much different here. We need to make sure that we please clients. You know, this is not a, a traditionally female space. And do you think that 
that might have had an impact on, on how much of a personal stamp people were kind of willing to put on things? Well, that was one of the premises that I had behind the exhibition and that I'm now still trying to develop with this PhD I'm doing, trying to understand, because what the exhibition wanted to try and do and this research project now is still doing, is try to find out why have these women been forgotten and why is it that in history some people are chosen to be recorded more than others. And the tendency in the last decades is that we document more of male work than female work. And there's a bit of what you said, yes, some of these women were in jobs that were behind institutions or behind record labels, behind a newspaper, and so they didn't have their own studio And yes, they were adapting more to the institution they were working in, and so their personality maybe didn't come through so much in the work. But also, it's more a problem of how design history documents the work that tries to find this authorial voice throughout decades of of someone's work. And so most of the time, the designers we know very well and can recognize their language very well, this is a product of their work being curated in a certain way by design historians over the years to sort of give us the idea. The truth is throughout, you know, with different clients and different briefs and different ways of doing a project, you use different formulas to resolve the problems. And so it's not always that easy to recognize a voice. And I think with these women, some of them, they cared more about the content and the relationship with the client and not so much having a a formal technique that would make them different from someone else. I don't think they were so worried about that. Obviously, you trawled through so much work that's kind of gone on over the last sort of multiple decades. But are there any particular examples of typographic projects that you've come across that you think would be particularly interesting that you could maybe share with with some of our listeners? There was a lot of very interesting, especially, I mean, throughout the whole thing, there was a lot of interesting type projects. I think if I had to choose one to talk about, I think I would choose the one that then helped us create the identity of Errata. So there was this really interesting book from the beginning of the century. The cover was designed by a woman called Raquel Roque and she was considered a graphic artist at the time because design wasn't a word then. This was very early on. And I was designing the identity for the project with my partner, and the cover is just really striking. It's a very typographic with an illustration and also the book itself was written by a feminist and was about having daughters. So it was very connected to the project in many ways. And we thought we picked up the type from that cover and sort of redrawn it for our project. And also because we wanted the identity to convey this idea that Echata is focused on the past but is trying to bring this conversation to the present. So I went to meet a contemporary type designer, Portuguese contemporary type designer called Susana Carvalho. She has a, a design studio called Carvalho Bernal with her partner, Kai Bernal, and they created a few fonts over the years and we picked one, of, she was very generous to let us pick one of the fonts that she had designed to use in our project. And so the identity of Errata is going from that old typography to the contemporary one, trying to 
convey that idea from the past to the present. I think that's probably the most interesting one I can talk about now. I mean, I'm looking at, at the type now, and could you maybe just give us a little overview in terms of what it features? Because, I mean, it's it's very striking in that, as you say, you, you spoke to a, a modern-day typographer to, to kind of get this done, but there are lots of elements in it that are very traditional. The original font was a kind of Gothic font. We only redesigned the necessary letters to write errata, so E-R-A-T, and then the font you see on the website is a sort of a combination between that font and the, the recent font from Susanna, which is called Atlas. And and so that this is why you see some words where if there's an A or an E that appears in the middle of the word, it will change to the old Gothic font that we sort of redrawn, trying to do a combination of past and present. The font that we're using from Susanna Carvalho, Atlas is a very contemporary neutral, very, very practical, very efficient kind of font. So I think it does a very good job of contrasting with this very decorative, gothic, old font. My thanks to Isabel Duarte there. She was speaking to Monocle's Charlie Fillmore Court. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. Today's episode was produced by Charlie Fillmore Court and Maylie Evans, who also edited the show. I'm Nick Manise. Thanks for listening.